from KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins told Congress yesterday that no safety standards will be compromised as the government evaluates the three COVID-19 vaccines that have advanced to phase three clinical trials. His remarks came a day after a group of pharmaceutical companies made a similar safety pledge and after AstraZeneca halted its vaccine study when a participant became seriously ill. The reassurances follow recent statements by President Trump that a vaccine would be available before Election Day, a claim that health experts widely dispute. We're going to talk about the status of COVID-19 vaccine vaccine research with Meg Terrell, who joins us. She's senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And welcome, Meg Terrell. Thank you. Good to have you. Uh, Let me begin by having you sort of trace for us or connect for us some of these things that have come together. I'm talking specifically about the testimony yesterday um, by Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, and um, the other things I mentioned. Uh, A lot of this caution now, especially nine companies coming together and making a pledge, which we'll talk about as well, that they will put science first. A lot of these were pretty much motivated by trying to politicize the virus uh, in many people's minds. I mean, that's at the heart of it, isn't it? Yeah, and really at the heart of it is uh, communication around Election Day as seemingly a pivotal date for uh, making this vaccine available. You know, this has come directly from the president on multiple occasions, suggesting uh, that a vaccine could be ready by then. You know, we've also heard communications from the pharmaceutical companies themselves that, judging by the pace of their trials, uh, at least some of the front runners, uh, Pfizer in particular, expects it could have data on its vaccine on the safety and efficacy as soon as the end of October. And then this was compounded by a letter that the CDC sent to governors urging them to make sure they're ready to distribute a potential COVID-19 vaccine by November 1st. And so this sort of fixation on election day as being tied to the availability of a vaccine has created a lot of concerns around political motivations and not the science driving uh, the pace here. And so these companies came out issuing this safety pledge, uh, which they called historic. And many people saw as wow, the pharmaceutical industry is the one reassuring us, and they're not exactly the most trusted industry in the country. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great irony when you think about it, because they aren't trusted as an industry, and yet they put out this joint safety announcement. It's not only pharmaceutical companies, but there's some biotech companies involved in this. And a lot of this was also set off by AstraZeneca, which I alluded to in my introduction. Uh, there was a pause in the clinical trials over in the UK with that company, because, uh, and they were in the third, later stage of testing, because... Uh, well, a participant got ill. Participant got a neurological illness, uh, and they don't know if it's necessarily related. But these, this, a lot of concern about side effects. You got about 150 independent uh, studies working toward vaccines, with the possibility in a number of cases of uh, what we don't know as side effects. Yeah, and right now, you know, there, it's a mystery about this case in the UK because we don't yet know whether it was caused by the vaccine or it just uh, happened, uh, you know, as a coincidence uh, in somebody who did get the vaccine. And we know that this woman was uh, administered the vaccine as part of the trial, so she wasn't on the placebo arm. And the mystery they need to solve now is: could this have been caused by something else? Did there, you know, were there symptoms that happened before she was given the vaccine? Those things would point to it not being the vaccine, but that's what needs to be worked out before this trial can restart. Uh, and so a lot of eyes are on that in terms of understanding the safety of that approach. 
Yeah, at this point, we just don't know. Uh, but it's a serious neurological element, transverse myelitis. Uh, and, and Dr. Fauci weighs in how on this? He says uh, we can't have this vaccine until it's proven. It's and that's unlikely before the election. Yeah, he uh, told um, Judy Woodruff in an interview earlier this week that it was unlikely to be before November 3rd and a direct question from her about that. He has consistently said he expects November or December by the end of the year, if we're lucky, to see if one of these works and is safe. Um, And so on the AstraZeneca event, you know, he's characterized it as something that's not not necessarily surprising. Um, These are trials of tens of thousands of people. And so these rare events will happen. And the trials are just paused as investigation happens to determine if it's related to the vaccine or not. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Meg Terrell, who is senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And if you have questions about the search for a vaccine, or if you have some statement you want to make uh, or an opinion you want to share, you can give us a call now and we invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. Talking about the search for a COVID vaccine, and you may want to weigh in here again. The number for your calls, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. There's also been a good deal of concern with getting back to the politicizing question, Meg, about how various, um, well, Stephen Hahn, for example, Commissioner uh, uh, Stephen Hahn uh, has weighed in here in a way that has made people very concerned, misrepresenting data he's been charged with about the ability of uh, blood plasma uh, removed from COVID-19 patients to actually treat the disease. And there was concern that uh, Health Secretary came on along a similar way. So I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but we've got concerns about officials, not only the Trump uh, president administration, but also those officials of CDC and for that matter, the WHO and how they affect us. Yeah, uh, people in the public health community were very shaken um, at that Sunday press conference from the White House where um, the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, overstated the data supporting how well convalescent plasma works to treat COVID-19. Uh, he then had to walk those comments back and explain that he mischaracterized them. Um, but you know, they issued this emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma. And then the NIH separately in its COVID-19 treatment guidelines said that the data don't necessarily support using convalescent plasma for COVID-19. And, and so there is a question uh, that some people have about um, whether the FDA is being politically pressured by the president. And of course, we have to note that the president tweeted directly at the FDA commissioner before this press conference, suggesting that the FDA was somehow delaying uh, the vaccine trials until after the election. So we have seen clearly that the president is pressuring the FDA commissioner in this way. And at this point, uh, I mean, you know, i am always been troubled by the fact that the fastest moving vaccine in recent history was a vaccine for mumps, which took four years. Um, and typically vaccines take about 10 to 15 years. We're all at this warp speed now, but is there any sense you have of what kind of timeline we're really talking about? Because some are saying somewhat, uh, sounding objective about the fact that, well, by before the new year or right around the time of the new year. So the timeline that Dr. Fauci has been giving since the beginning has been 12 to 18 months. And remarkably, as of now, even with this pause of AstraZeneca's trial, that timeline still looks like it's going to be 
accurate. And what's so remarkable about that is just as you said, the fastest vaccine development in history was four years. So this is already amazingly shorter. So in order to meet that timeline, everything needs to continue to go right. And this pause of the AstraZeneca trial may turn out to be nothing. And the trial may start up again as soon as next week. It may not. We, we have to wait to find out what has happened. Um, but it's really remarkable to see this effort happening with really no hiccups so far. We are, you know, in September, Dr. Fauci started making these predictions in January or February, and it looks like he's gonna be right. Um, there are so many programs moving forward, uh, Pfizer's and Moderna's, and we might see those data in October, November, December, and if they're good, the FDA could give an emergency use authorization for that at the end of the year, early next year. But, you know, it also could turn out these vaccines don't work well enough to be approved or, or there could be a safety problem. And so that's what these phase three trials are for. We've also got some big questions looming. I mean, not only ba basic questions, not only about when it's going to be available, but who's going to get it. Yes. And so there are multiple government uh, entities uh, and advisors working on figuring out those plans. So there's an advisory committee to the CDC, uh, the National Academies of uh, Medicine have been working on these prioritization plans. Uh, they're not firm yet, but some of the groups that they'll prioritize include uh, obviously, those who are at highest risk of the disease, people who are working on the front lines, uh, and also those who are vulnerable, uh, the elderly, people with underlying conditions uh, like that. And then it'll kind of be rolled out in a stepwise fashion, because, of course, even if these vaccines are approved quickly, we won't have enough supply of them for everybody right away. So it's going to be a stepwise rollout. I want to mention also uh, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, Vice Admiral, uh, Vice Admiral uh, Jerome Adams, is pretty much in line with Francis Collins and with uh, the um, companies that have signed this pact or this pledge and so forth. Uh, and he's part of the administration. So I think things have to be seen in, in that context as well. Let me bring a caller on here. John from San Diego joins us. John, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, good morning, guys. Um, I called in relationship to COVID-19 because as a 40-year survivor of HIV AIDS and 25 years of that from the early 80s, I spent uh, in research study for the drugs that are now available. So in th those 25 years that I did that, that I volunteered, no vaccine was ever found. They, I don't know if they weren't working on it or they were working on it, but they did come up with the drugs. But 25 years is a long time, if I remember correctly. And for me to hear this right now about this vaccine and an election and all this rush, it is very, very disturbing to me to think that people could swallow that pill. And I've swallowed many pills. And I've John, I understand your concern. I think a lot of people share that concern, especially those who are waiting for uh, an AIDS vaccine that didn't arrive. I mean, there have been some great breakthroughs in terms of dealing with the AIDS virus but uh, and HIV. But at this point, you want to comment on this, Meg? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. Uh, and Dr. Fauci actually just talked today about uh, experiences with HIV as really a warning to be humble about this pandemic. Uh, because at the beginning, of course, people downplayed the potential damage that, that could be caused by that virus. Um, 
you know, he, he didn't bring up the concern that you do hear from many people that we don't have a vaccine for HIV. And, and it's not because people haven't tried. Um, I have been reading this great book by a science correspondent, John Cohen, who wrote about uh, the original attempts for an HIV vaccine. Um, I, I believe it's called Shots in the Dark. And, um, you know, it really shows that at the beginning, they were so optimistic that it would only take two years to get an HIV vaccine, and then four years. And and it kept getting stretched out. Uh, so you, your frustration is shared by by many. Um, and they are very different viruses. Uh, and people hope and expect that this one will be simpler to solve through a vaccine. But it, it's a really good point. And let's get back to the pledge for just a moment. Uh, I mean, you know, you were talking uh, about the skepticism many people have about big pharma and, and pharmaceutical companies, and some of that is well-earned and well-merited. Uh, but they not only say that they're standing behind the science and that they're trying to ensure public confidence uh, with the highest ethical standards, they've got independent data and safety monitoring uh, uh, board for protocols on all this for the trials themselves uh, and overseeing the trials. Um, actually, the government, as opposed to the companies doing a lot of that oversight. I just wanted to mention that because I think it's an important fact in all of this uh, trust with the, with the pharmaceutical companies. Let me read a couple of comments coming in. A listener writes, by sowing distrust on all fronts regarding the virus, the president's worst legacy may be the widespread public distrust in the ultimate vaccine, even if it is actually safe. And another listener trusts uh, tweets, excuse me, I trust the American pharmaceuticals are safe. The only problem I have is with their price. And let me bring another caller on. Ann joins us. Ann, welcome. You're on the air. Yes. Hi, Michael. Um, am I understanding from this that the federal government is going to be asking the state governors to distribute the vaccines and that the federal government is not preparing a plan for a national distribution? And then the second part, does the federal government expect the states to pay for distribution? Yeah, both good questions. And Meg, actually, the CDC has asked governors to fast track licenses. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yes, uh, that, it's a really good question. And it really highlights a problem that that we are going to face, which is that our local public health departments don't have the funding that they need necessarily to be able to implement this. Uh, it's such a huge scale. Um, so the the CDC has asked governors to essentially fast track any approvals that need to be made in order to facilitate the distribution of the vaccine. And it's kind of the way our health system works in this country, which is, you know, we do have obviously a national federal government, but then our public health is really done at the local level. So states uh, are sort of in charge of what of what goes on. And there's been criticism of that system throughout the whole pandemic because, you know, testing is left up to states so there's been a criticism that we don't have a national testing strategy. I know the administration would push, push back against that, but but yes, this will be sort of implemented at, at the local level. And let me thank Anne for her call. Another listener wants to know, uh, or writes, I'm wondering how much should people worry about long-term effects for any vaccine that comes out? Some thoughts on that, Anne Terrell? Meg Terrell, excuse well, me. Sorry. Oh, no, that's all right. Last <laughs> caller was Anne. Yeah. It's another good question. Um, at, at the point of original, uh, the initial authorization of these vaccines, we'll of course only have uh, seen data on their safety for uh, months because you know they didn't start being tested in humans until March uh, at the earliest, and so uh, we won't know about the long-term. Uh, safety of these vaccines, but the people who enroll in these clinical trials, who should be thanked for doing so, um, you know, will 
continue to be followed um, as part of the trials, even if the vaccines are granted uh, initial clearance. Uh, so we will continue to learn about them. But when I talk to experts in vaccines, uh, they've told me the things that people are most uh, concerned about are things that would happen sort of right away um, in, in being administered the vaccines. And so uh, they expect that you would uh, see that uh, likely in the trial or um, as the vaccines are rolled out more broadly in the initial rollout. And again, our guest is Meg Terrell, and she's senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And Frank is our next caller. Frank, you're on the air. Good morning. Yes, thank you. A uh, couple questions. One is I've heard varying rates of potential efficacy from anywhere from 30% to 70% in terms of being able to protection. And then it's unclear about what the length of protection that the vaccine would provide against the COVID-19. Thank you for the questions, Frank. Meg Terrell? Yeah, both really good questions. And in terms of the efficacy, the FDA has set a bar of needing to see at least 50% protection from these vaccines. Uh, and that can mean either protection completely against infection uh, or in protecting people from severe disease. So keeping you know half of the people who get the disease out of the hospital, for example. Um, and in terms of how long the protection will last, that's another question that's going to have to be answered over a period of time with observation. Um, many people hope that you know these will last for a year um, or or longer. I mean, everybody hopes they'll last forever, like the measles vaccine. But um, we just won't know that until we observe it. Well, we're also going to have to wait to the verdict on AstraZeneca. And uh, a listener clarifies uh, a point on that, writing the problem the test subject has is an inflammatory illness, not a neurological illness. The inflammation just happens to be of the myelin of nerves in the spinal column. The fact that it's an inflammatory condition makes it plausible that it was caused or abetted by the vaccine. Thank you for that, because uh, often what we're hearing are neurological problems, and this is a spinal cord uh, problem related to inflammation. Uh, uh, that is uh, an, an inflammation uh, uh, of the nerves. Thank you so much for joining us, Meg Terrell. Good to have you with us on this segment of Forum. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Meg Terrell, again, is senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And thank you, our listeners. We wouldn't be here without you. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. And uh, always invite you to let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear on Forum by emailing us forum at kqed.org. And for all of us here at the Forum program and at KQED Public Radio, I thank you for being a part of this program. And Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.